0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Although some upbeat economic news in recent weeks might indicate the beginning of the end of the recession, there's still plenty of wreckage to deal with, says Wharton real estate professor Peter D. Lineman. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the housing and commercial property sectors, which have taken one of their worst beatings ever. In an interview with Knowledge at Wharton, Linneman draws on policy missteps of the past to caution the Obama administration to tread carefully and avoid trying to cure things they can't cure, while contending that the U.S. might have more in common with countries like Venezuela, Russia, and Japan than most observers think.
1: Uh, Peter Lineman, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. Uh, I wonder if we could just start by taking stock of the real estate market both housing and commercial.
2: What does it look like to you today and for the rest of the year? Okay, let's take housing first. Um, Two parts, single family. Single family is clearly bottomed. Uh, It is the untold story. Single family housing starts have bottomed and will slowly pick up. Single family housing prices in almost every market have bottomed. Um, For the last four months, single family housing prices at multiple listing services namely what real people are selling their homes at instead of foreclosure sales, have been up for four months in almost every market except Vegas. Um, So that part is positive absent further economic collapse driven by Washington. Um, The multifamily side has fallen off a cliff. Multifamily starts are about a quarter of their historic norm. Uh, They're down... 75% in about seven months as a run rate, and they'll stay down because of the shortage of construction capital available. Um, It's not such a horrible thing because there's a fair amount of vacancy. What's happened in the economy is as the economy has lost jobs, people have doubled up. They stay with their parents, our young graduates. Immigrants stay with their cousin and brother. Uh, That will continue until the economy improves, which probably won't be until late this year and into next, again, if Washington can just keep calm. Um, Therefore, the lack of construction that's going on uh, actually is a good thing in the sense that it means you can eat up excess inventory. It's not good if you're in the construction business, but as a general matter, it's good. Um, I see the multifamily taking actually longer to pick back up. It won't pick back up, I don't think, until next year, based on my analyses. Um, if you say, is the storm over? I think the storm is over. What's left is cleaning up the wreckage of the storm. And I think people just have a hard time distinguishing the storm and the wreckage. Uh, big difference, though. When that hurricane's still hitting you, it's still creating more damage. Now what you're dealing with in the housing side is all these people who bought speculative homes. They thought the price would only go up. They thought they'd flip them in six months. There was nobody to flip them to. Of course they foreclosed. They had no money in it. They didn't lose anything. That's probably over half a million homes, just that. Um, So the wreckage is still being dealt with. The people who were speculators, the people who bought 97% loan homes, even if they were living in them, and the greater Ohio. Greater Ohio is, say, Ohio and 50 miles of the Ohio border. That's in a real recession. It's been in a real recession for seven years. Um, That's a different issue than the rest of the country. So I think the worst is over, but there's a lot of cleanup that's going to have to occur. And unfortunately, I think the government is trying to... Cure things they can't cure. Uh, I I have the statement that the government is trying to do what it's not theirs to give. Salvation is not theirs to give, but they're trying to give salvation. If you had no money in your home and you thought you would flip it in six months for 100% profit and prices fell 20%, salvation is not the government's to give. They shouldn't do it, and the more they try to do it, the more harm they're doing rather than good, but I think we've passed. the, the, the storm is basically over on housing. The cleanup is still to come. Uh, uh, when you say the storm is over and what's left of the, is the cleanup, is that just in the U.S. or do you see the same? Thing I think that's fairly true everywhere. Um, I think it's fairly true everywhere. The difference is um, on the commercial side. I think it's true everywhere, with the minor exception of China, and the and Brazil. And the very minor section of India on the commercial side. And when I say that to the good for Brazil, China, and possibly India. If you leave uh, commercial and you go to single family, uh, I think it's fairly true everywhere around the world, but there's a lot of damage to clean up.
1: Now, who do you see the differences between the way the financial crisis? affected the subprime, uh, the, the housing market and the commercial
2: market? Well, it's to- in one sense it's totally different, in the other sense it was not. The way it was totally different is, it really wasn't subprime. What it was is, the common element was the Fed kept interest rates at effectively 1% for four years. That get- While well, inflation was running 2.5%, that guaranteed that anybody who put their money short and SAFE lost money for four years. Well, people aren't going to sit around and lose money for four years. Therefore, people piled into long and risky. The, therefore, the common element is what was long and risky. The, and by the way, subprime was long and risky. Um, Certain types of commercial real estate were long and risky. Condominium developments were long and risky, not just in the U.S. Developments in India land were long and risky. Uh, Leverage buyouts of operating companies were long and risky. So the common element was long and risky, not real estate. And in fact, if you look across the world, anything that was long and risky has been crushed because the government went from forcing people artificially to demand long and risky to quite the opposite. They forced them to demand short and safe. Well, when that happened, the supply of long and risky had not changed dramatically. The demand changed dramatically from being artificially high to artificially low. And to the extent that the government also encouraged with low interest rates, the Fed with low interest rates, encouraged people to borrow short and floating. So you had this odd situation where you were kind of encouraged to invest long but it, but borrow short. That was a disaster that had to end. And anything that was long and risky had the same impact. And I think that's what's been lost in the shuffle is people are looking at the symptoms rather than the cause. The cause was low interest rates forced people to go long and risky. Better to lose money later with a risk than for sure now. Well it turns out now is the settling up for you went long and risky and the thing has changed. So in that sense there was a similar. There's no similarity between a home loan and a commercial real estate. Commercial real estate has a cash flow behind it. It has tenants behind it. It has everybody from the US government to a venture capital firm as a tenant. Homes have you and me deciding do we want to stay there. No cash flow. And so and by the way, the leverage was much higher on the single family side at the margin. Although people forget, 20% of all homeowners have no mortgage, no mortgage in the United States. So that part of the story, in fact, one of the things people forget is only 5% of all Americans are not current with a mortgage. 33% rent, and 20% have no mortgage at all, and 5% aren't paying out of Americans. And so when you think about it that way, it's, an, it's like Michael Jackson, it's an undue focus on a small amount of things, but it's a very noteworthy amount of things. So in that way, they're similar. the dynamics, though, are very different in terms of cash flows and the nature of the mortgages and the structures. Now, Coming
1: back to the role of the government, you said earlier that they shouldn't try to do what they can't and, and what there's not to do. What is the right strategy for the government now? Um,
2: my view is that the government should have done and didn't Uh, admit that they also are human beings. You know, Milton Friedman was an old professor of mine, and he used to say that when you listen to people talk about the government, if you change the word government into omnipotent deity, the meaning of most sentences would be unchanged. And so you hear people say the government should help... um, delinquent borrowers well what you really are saying is an omnipotent deity should come in and save them and, and 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 so forth so when you realize that they're just human beings they have no more information than we do they have no more expertise than we do they have powers of mandatory behavior which are dangerous because I make mistakes every day at my job uh, for all we know this tape is not working well if this tape is not working and it's just us it affects two of us. If we've done a similar mistake and we're in charge of the government, it affects 300 million people. And so what I think they really need to do is admit they're human, that they do not have answers. And my phrase I've used throughout all this is, first, do no harm. You know, I, if you take a life safety course, first thing they teach you is do nothing until you completely understand the situation. Do nothing. Well, we've had a government that for the last year, has, under both the Bush administration with, with uh, Paulson and the Obama administration with Geithner, has leaped, and then they look. They leap to grand solutions, whether it's TARP or TAUF or take any uh, letter. And by the way, then two days later, they say, well, we're not going to do it that way. And by the way, we're changing. And so as somebody who follows this close, all they've done is obliterate rules. And the thing that distinguishes us from Zimbabwe And distinguish us from Russia and Venezuela is that prior to September 1st, you had a fair idea that if a company couldn't pay their debts, they'd go into bankruptcy and the process would work out. You had a fair idea that um, if a bank uh, couldn't collect its loans, it would be taken over by the FDIC and liquidated. Starting February 1, you had no idea. Could you short stocks or not or how long? Now they're talking about oil. Will we regulate oil prices? And just on and on and on so that you have no certainty at all. By the way, what's the best way to raise money prior to September 1st last year? You went to Wall Street. You made a pitch to investors and you tried to convince them. What's the best way to make money today? Lose a lot of money and then go to Washington with your political power and try to raise money that can't be good because i don't know who's politically powerful enough so they've ruined the playing field they they've there is people do not play games if they don't know the rules that's why zimbabwe and venezuela and russia have weaker economies is nobody knows the rules i don't even have to like the rules i just have you and i play games all the time that we think the rules are stupid but as long as we can know the rules we'll play We changed from the most predictable rules in the world to Russia, Venezuela. If you don't believe it, suppose I told you the Duma in Russia for two weeks conducted hearings on whether to subsidize to the tune of tens of billions of dollars a couple of companies. And after two weeks they said no, and the next day Putin said yes. You'd say, well, that's Russia. And that's why I don't invest in Russia. That's literally what happened in November to the auto industry. Congress conducted hearings. They said no. And 12 hours later, the Secretary of Treasury said, well, we'll do it anyway. That's what I mean. And I'm not picking on Democrats or Republicans. Unfortunately, this is cross-party line. So what they really need to do is less. And unfortunately, that is not what they're good at.
1: That's a great answer. Uh,
2: Let's look back about 20
1: years. Uh, The savings and loan debacle happened. The RTC stepped in to solve at that time what looked like a big mess. And Wall Street and securitization and REITs emerged as a solution. As this whole scenario plays out with real estate finance and housing and commercial real estate, where do you see the emerging sources of capital? And what will the landscape look
2: like? Well, okay, a couple things. There's a great similarity between what happened then and happened now Um, in two ways. One, human nature... And human nature uh, then said things only go up and we believed our own bullshit. And by the way, one of the things that happens at the end of every cycle is human nature takes over. By the way, it's not the first time human nature has been taking over all of history. And all of history, utopians go around saying, well, I'm going to change human nature. Well, you're not going to change human nature. Um, You're not going to regulate human nature out of existence. You're not going to... Madoff is not the first guy to steal. Wars have been going on since the dawn of man. Murder has been going on. And by the way, so have economic ups and downs because of the hubris of people. That was a bust of hubris. The difference was government then said, we are going to live by the rules, and if you're not solvent, we're going to shut you down. Now, did they make some mistakes with hindsight of shutting down a few people who were solvent? Yes, and the courts later resolved that. And there were so many of them that were insolvent, they had to liquidate them and set up a special agency. Um, Instead of doing that this time, the government has said, we can decide how to keep people alive. And so instead of shutting down the insolvent, they've kept the insolvent alive and pumped billions of dollars. Well, think about it. There's only so much money and capital in the system. If you give money to insolvent people, all you're guaranteeing is that the solvent aren't getting the money. There's only so much. So if you, my, my analogy I've said is if you give blood transfusions to the dead, they're not only not going to get up and dance the jig, there's no blood to give to those who are still alive and could benefit from it. The big mistake we made this time was that. Now, you mentioned securitization. Securitization came to the rescue, actually of Latin America debt, if you think about it, uh, back earlier with the Brady bonds. It came to the rescue of the SN;L crisis, namely, we'll package stuff up. Now securitization both in terms of debt and equity. Um, the equity side has proven pretty successful. Yes, the stock prices fell. Hey, stock prices of everything fell. Reed stock prices fell more than the prices of other stocks for one simple reason. That in normal times, they have a beta of about 0.5. They aren't perfectly correlated. Therefore, people are willing to pay a premium for something that's not perfectly correlated. When people rush for the fire escape, everything's perfectly correlated. So not only does it go down as much as everything else, no longer are you getting a premium for the fact it doesn't. So it actually has to fall more. Now, the flip side is going to be as it comes out, it will go back up more until the next time we rush to the fire escape. And we will rush to the fire escape again within the next 10 years because we're human. Um, How will the capital sources come? It will be equity, not debt. It will, in the near term, be a massive debt for equity swap. People say we're over levered. Not at the current valuations of debt. On the market, we aren't. At the face value of the debt we are, but not at the current market valuation. Well, it's a little like saying I put into my stocks a hundred million. Of course, they're worth 20 million today, and you're still saying, well, no, they're worth a hundred million. No, they aren't. They're worth twenty. In the same sense, if you look at the market value of the debt, whether you trace it through the banks, whether you trace it through what's traded or through CMBS or RMBS, we're not overlevered. What we are is over face valued, which means because debt is a contract, you got a lot of contracts that have to be worked out, whereas equity says no workouts, it's just down. So it's great for lawyers, bad for everybody else. Where will the money come? It'll, I think, come from public capital markets first. I think the REITs are the best position to take advantage of this because they're around and they're loaded and they're low leverage and they're transparent in they're name brands. Um, the private equity funds will take advantage of it. It's more difficult because they've told investors are going to get 20 to 25% returns, and it's very hard to make a pro forma show a 20 to 25% return on a cash stream, any cash stream, without a lot of leverage. And so the absence of leverage means you can get 12, 15, 18s on paper, but not 20s. And that's a challenge for the private equities. Uh, In fact, I've said anytime you can do a pro forma and generate a 20, you'll never do it. And anytime you can't do a pro forma that generates a 20, you actually might be able to do it because it means capital is scarce and you might be able to do it. I think what you'll see is a lot of equitization, though. You'll see some private equity funds probably go public, for example, and issue stock, use that money to pay down the debt, lower their debt levels, and restructure in that way. You're going to see private owners do it. You're going to see banks sell off assets. I think it's going to go a lot slower than people think because this time the U.S. government's acting much more like Japan did in the early 90s, which is very slow to shut down the insolvent. We are feeding, we're giving blood to the dead rather than giving blood to the living. And if we do that, they just have less incentive to move the assets, create a market, and move on. Uh,
1: What will real estate look like in the future and what should it look like in the future?
2: What it will look like in the future is pretty obvious. Uh, Ups and downs with more up than down, probably 60 to 70 percent up and 30 percent down, but the downs being right when you think they're impossible to occur and the ups occurring just when you think they'll never occur. And I say that and I'll come back to structurally, you know if you go back over the last, uh, since 97, I was saying to some friends at a gathering that I host of major real estate people, if you go back to 97 right before the Russian ruble crisis, nobody saw the extent of the collapse. You, Some people saw there was weakness, but nobody saw the extent. If you sat at the bottom, post-Russian ruble crisis, nobody saw the height of dot-com, which was two years later, in terms of valuation and frothiness. If you sat at the height of the dot-com, nobody saw that two years later you'd be in the depths of 9-11. You may have seen a down, but not the depths. As you sat in the depths of post-9-11, Nobody saw 2005 being as strong as it was. As you sat in 2005, nobody saw the first quarter of 2007 being as frothy as it was. And as you sat in the first quarter of 2007, no one saw the depths we're in now. So why do you believe any of us when we sit here and say anything? Because even those of us who have done pretty good at predicting have only predicted direction and generally miss magnitude. I predicted recession five years ago and every quarter thereafter for 2009, okay? So, great, I was right. Um, I predicted flat GDP and a million and a half job losses. Well, I was only off by, by four and a half million jobs And I was only off by 6% of GDP. But other than that, I was a genius, right? And the point being, even those of us who got magnitudes right, I mean, excuse me, directions right, miss magnitude. So I think we need to have some humility and understanding. I think we're gonna be very wrong about the next two years. I think the next two years, are gonna see a lot of asset price appreciation, particularly related to real estate. I think you're gonna see better economic performance than people are foreseeing. If you look at past recessions, that's always turned out to be the case. Um, if you say, what, the real estate industry, you're going to have a great four or five, about probably four years for the public companies, including companies that aren't public going public. You're going to see a number of the private equity funds struggle, uh, some to stay in existence and because they were heavier debt. So let's face it, anybody who used debt is caught up in that negotiation game. And if all your energies are caught in the negotiation, you're not in the create new value game. You only have so much time and energy. So what I think you're going to see is those who had low debt, which are going to be a few families, but mostly public companies, are going to see their time because they aren't as encumbered by debt. And therefore, they'll be more able to take, and the private funds and the heavily leveraged being the opposite. If you go forward from that, will securitization arise? Some version, yes. Do I know exactly the version? No. There's probably some 35-year-old out there who's figuring out the new answer that will be the end of history, and then five years later we're gonna turn out it's not the end of history. And one of the the advantages of being old is you realize every solution creates its own problem. But it did solve a problem at the moment. And so, and I'll deal with the problem of five years, five years from now. And I'll be happy to deal with the problem of five years from now if I can just solve the problem today. And if you think about life, that's how we go through life as a human being. I solve the problem of today. Are you working on the article of five years from now? Hey, I got enough problems. you getting the article of today together. Um, sort of similar, right? So... I think what you'll see, though, is securitization is not going to go away. um, It's interesting people are saying, well, you know, we should do this regulation or we should not allow this or not allow that. Trust me, if you go back and read the literature that people wrote as securitization was occurring, not just in real estate, intelligent people doing thoughtful analysis said, look at all the problems it's solving. And, oh, yes, yes. It does have a few drawbacks. But, well, it turns out that the butts, as things get momentum, the buts come to dominate the benefits. In the beginning, it's easy to get the benefits to dominate the butts, And as we push things and we start believing our own bullshit and our hubris sets in, we push the margins and the butts become. Now, you're gonna get all these people who say, okay, now we've got the solution. Trust me, it's not gonna be the solution. I've been doing this for a long time. There is no the solution. There's just a solution that gets us from here to there. And then eventually we die. And then the next people take it. There is a mythology. The mythology is securitization created this problem. It's not true. What created the problem was bad risk analysis. And it created it whether it was bad risk analysis on the equity side or bad risk analysis on the debt side a loan to somebody to flip an apartment, a condominium, when there are 50 apartments that are going to be moved in by real people and there are 500 of them being delivered in a year, is if you give a 100% loan on that, that's a bad loan because it was badly underwritten, whether it's securitized or held as private, or by the way, even if it's bought with 100% equity, it's a bad risk analysis. 50 are needed. And 500 are being built. That's 10 years' worth. If you're pouring money into that, that's bad. So what the real problem was was bad risk analysis. Bad risk analysis generally goes with either the end of a cycle when we start believing ourselves or bad policy. And the bad policy was the 1% interest rate, which made things look better than they should have as an alternative. By the way, do I think the Fed will never make another monetary policy mistake? It was an honest mistake. It certainly wasn't a dishonest mistake. Of course they're going to make more mistakes because they're just human beings. And so the securitization ramp is wrong. Japan in the 1980s made the greatest number of insane loans with the worst risk analysis and the worst documentation in modern history. None of them were securitized. They were all held on balance sheet. So if you think securitization caused it, as opposed to the fundamentals. The fundamentals cause it. The, the, the packaging of it influence it at the margin. But bad decisions are bad decisions no matter how I package them. But, but I, I
1: think the argument that some people might have is that with securitization, you don't have to hold the risk. You can move it to somebody else. You can move it to... Come on, the old joke.
2: This, this, the old joke was, I make the loan, and, I, and this is in the whole loan world when you didn't securitize. I make the loan, and then if it doesn't work, I pretend it's good until either I get promoted or retire. Right? That was it. So, yeah, the institution in some sense held it. But when you get back down to where the rubber meets the road is human beings. And the human being has the incentive to not, take the responsibility for their own mistake we have the human being dimension to take all the responsibility for any success we're remotely near including success we have nothing to do with what is it uh, failure is a bastard child with no parents and and success is a thousand fathers these are old sayings for a reason right so You know, when they were held as whole loans, or when they were done as equity, dot com had relatively little debt. Was some of the worst risk analysis ever. Billions of dollars, hundreds of billion dollars, wasted on bad risk analysis. By the way, if we'd have done it as debt rather than equity, would it have been any smarter? If we'd have held them as whole loans rather than equity, would would if we had secured? I mean, dumb is dumb as risk analysis, and the packaging can influence, but it's secondary. It's The truth is you saw relatively few people with 100% of their own money making really dumb decisions in any of these. What you always see is a lot of people with other people's money and an incentive structure. And because we're human beings with flawed integrity and flawed and the ability to tell ourselves we're doing the right things even when we're not. I mean, one of our greatest abilities is deluding ourselves. I look in the mirror every morning and I see John Wayne at his best. Hey, it gets me through the day, you know? And you see the storybook here. We all delude. So what happens is on these things, people are focusing on the package it came in. I've got bad incentives, whether I'm holding the loans on and I'm trying to get my bonus that year... Or I'm trying to sell them off and get my bonus that year. Maybe more transparent one way or the other. Interestingly, I think the securitization made the problem visible about two years earlier than it did in Japan when it was private and then it did in the SNLs when it was behind closed doors. Uh, I shudder to think how big the mistakes would have grown to if they'd have been behind closed doors instead of securitized.
1: One last question. What are the... Uh, Main lessons that you think
2: come, should be learned from this whole experience? Great lessons. Couple lessons. Uh, one, whenever there's more money being offered to you than you can imagine, it will be followed by a period where nobody's going to offer you money. Another lesson don't match long assets with short liabilities. By the way, these aren't rocket science lessons, but they are lessons. Third, debt has risk. Normally, and too often, people only think debt has a price, but not a risk. A lot of people say, well, debt's cheaper than equity. You understand how many people paid as the cost of their debt, not the interest rate. They paid all their equity. So I put in 20% equity on a purchase. The interest rate was 4%. It ended up costing me one year of 4% interest and 20 cost me 100% of my equity. So the cost, debt has risk. The biggest risk of debt is not that the interest rate goes up. The biggest, biggest risk of debt has always been, I wrote this in my book like six years ago, the biggest risk is always they don't want to give you money when your debt's due. And that none of them want to give you money. I mean, it's just, the, this is not the first time it's happened. It's interesting, I'm 58 and in the last 31 years, I counted five times when, one, when events that supposedly only happen once every 100 years economically have occurred. must have been a good 31 years, you know? I don't know. Um, this stuff happens, and it happens because we're human. That's the last lesson. We are human. And, you know, they're talking about more regulations. We don't need more regulations. We just need to enforce the regulations we have. We have regulations that date back to the 30s that say no federally insured depository can exist unless it can demonstrate safeness and soundness. And we pay regulators, we have paid regulators, to enforce that. I think they missed. Now, by the way, I'm not even blaming them. Remember, the burden of proof is you don't get a government-insured deposit license unless you can demonstrate safety and soundness. Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious they weren't safe and sound. The law was there. And I'm not even faulting human beings. Again, they're human beings on the regulating side as well. The notion that you can regulate people into good behavior. uh, We've got more regulations. It reminds me of the tragedies of gun control. Every time somebody walks into a McDonald's or a post office or a school and kills 13 people with a handgun, you know that the next day will be cries for more gun control. Now every state in the country has, you know, probably 14 inches of gun control laws because every time somebody's come in, they pass a new addition. What we need to do is to enforce the gun control laws which say children should not have access to them, criminals should not have access to them, mentally unstable people should, all those laws already exist so that much of the cries for more regulation forget more regulation just really enforce the ones we already have and all the more regulation do in a way is make it harder to enforce because i'm going to have to spend a year figuring out what they mean and by the way now instead of 14 inches i've got 28 inches of regulation and you know i can't pay attention to all of them madoff is not a matter of market failure madoff is a matter of of regulatory failure Over four administrations, the guy was a thief. Now, by the way, do we mean new laws against thieves? There's been laws against thieves as far as mankind. And yet, there's always thieves. So the issue is having the will to enforce what you have. It's rare that we're passing a law that is truly improving on the fundamentals of the Ten Commandments or the Koran or whatever you go way back. They figured it out then. Don't lie, don't steal, don't, you know. <laughs> that's it. Let's just have a real simple if I catch you stealing, I'll What we need is a dedicated enforcement effort um, that takes it seriously. And that's difficult to do because it takes a human will that's generally not there. We're not inventing anything new, we're just reliving. That. By the way, you understand. That 100 years from now, this is all just history. And it's just like reading about World War I. It happened over there and a whole bunch of people got hurt and some died. It was a great tragedy, but it will just be history. We're just living history, and it's just going to keep repeating itself in variations. At least that's my view.
0: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.